Hi, everybody. Welcome to Conversations with Calvin, We the Species. Uh, and, and I've actually been talking to Dakota Irby, Dr. Dakota Irby, uh, for like an hour, uh, uh, which kind of used up some of the time. I had to because there was so much I wanted to say. I, I've been uh, working and preparing for this, uh, unlike almost every interview I've done. This is uh, because it's so important to me, the work that he does and, and stuck improving the book that he wrote, uh, racial equity and school leadership means a lot to me. Uh, and, and that's why I took pages of notes on, on the book and I listened to his music. Uh, and, and he's a creator. He'll tell you what that is. And he's an activist, uh, and he's a musician and there's so much to unpack. And, and I have to thank uh, and, and I haven't yet, but I'm thanking her now. Nanda Disu from Coriolis, uh, she's a publicist. And yeah. that's how Dakota and I got connected. And, and I'm so grateful for that. Uh, and and I, I could probably make this into a 20 minute, you won't let me, but a 20 minute uh, introduction uh, because that's how important the work that you do is to me and it is to all of us. So uh, I'm done with my Johnny Carson monologue. Uh, and I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Dakota Irby. A uh, little bio and uh, take it away. Yeah, sure. Well, um, first of all, uh, Calvin, thanks for having me on your, your show and giving me and other people this platform. I really appreciate it. So just a little bit about myself. Um, again, my name is Dakota Chicago. Um, I describe myself first and foremost as a creator, which is a kind of new title for me. I, hopefully we maybe talk about that a little while. I haven't always called myself that. Um, I grew up in South Carolina. Um, I've lived in multiple places. Green, I grew up in Greenville, South Carolina. I lived in Charleston, South Carolina, where I went to college of Charleston. Uh, I've lived in Philadelphia, where I went to Temple University. I also lived in at San Francisco, I was at University of San Francisco for a very brief moment. Um, I've also lived in Milwaukee and now I live in Chicago and everybody tells me that's a lot of moving and it is. <laughs> so, uh, but one of the beautiful things is that I've had the opportunity to live in different areas of the United States and soak in the culture and the customs and the ways that people move in different areas. Um, and so I'm deeply, deeply appreciative and grateful for that. So. Um, a little bit about my kind of backstory of how I landed where I'm at. You know, I always uh, kind of say that I'm here kind of by grace and people kind of giving me direction. One of the things I uh, say about myself is I'm pretty coachable. Um, and, uh, you know, I went to, you know, high school, uh, middle school, had a normal kind of typical upbringing. I lived with my mom and my two sisters and, you know, had family all around me. So I always felt um, like I had the freedom and autonomy to kind of take risk and explore. Um, so just a typical summer day, for example, when I was growing up in South Carolina was me and my friends. We get on our bikes and we roam around the neighborhood and we drink water out of, you know, people's water fountain, you know, water hoses that we didn't know. That was the kind of community that I grew up in where, you know, if you were drinking out of somebody's water hose, they would come out and just tell you to make sure you wrap it back up when you're done. So um, I think some of that has really shaped my willingness uh, to kind of roam and move to different places and assume that people are, you know, positive, um, assume that I, and assume that I'll have positive 
uh, experiences in different places that I go. So um, I went to college in Charleston. Uh, I was involved with Black Student Union. I majored in economics. I had a lot of really cool people around me, as particular adults, and in particular, a lot of Black adults. Um, I worked at a, a research center called Avery, Amer Avery Research Center for African-American History and Culture. And a lot of the folks there encouraged me to go on to graduate school, as well as many of my professors uh, from my econ program. So I went, moved to Philadelphia, uh, wanted to be in the city because I wanted to study urban studies. Uh, I did. I got my master's in geography and urban studies at Temple. And at the time, started working with young people and really just you know, just enjoyed it. It gave me a reason to wake up. It gave me energy uh, working with high schoolers and young adults, you know, from ages about 14 to about 22. Uh, the older folks were a lot uh, were aiming to get their GED. And so I taught GED classes for some years and uh, I just enjoyed it. And that experience working with young people led me to want to get a PhD in urban education because I was always concerned with the, the pattern that I saw where this the system was failing students and their families, despite them oftentimes doing everything that they, you know, were told to do, you know, go to school, be on time, turn in your work, study hard, fill out the financial aid form, all of those things. And then I saw family after family and student after student, things not working out despite the fact that they had done everything that they were asked to do. So that made me very curious and kind of, um, about what I could do to begin to affect change in school systems and the educational system. That's what led me to a PhD and fast forward through a few universities and a lot of work and publications. And now I'm at University of Illinois at Chicago where I'm an associate professor in education policy, policy studies. And in addition to all that, I'm a father and a husband. I have two wonderful kids ages seven and nine. And uh, yeah, we, I spend a lot of time with them and we have a lot of fun. They keep me busy. They do. Uh, they do. It's funny. Uh, my grandchildren live with us. Um, my son and daughter-in-law live with us until they find a place. So I'm uh, a bit of a custodian to watch and take care of my granddaughter, who's 15 months old. It's intense. Oh, yeah. That age. It's intense. <laughs> uh, and uh, it, it, it's one of the great experiences in life to be able to have that. You know, usually grandparents, you know, four times a year, they see the grandkids. But, I, you know, I have that uh, every day, uh, and it's, it's wonderful. And I know what you're saying. Um, to start off, uh, this whole creative thing uh, fascinates me. And, and you know, I have a, my notes. You know, the, uh, the, the it, it covers such a multitude of things you're being a creator. And I love that. I love that term. I, I, I almost want to plagiarize it, but I, I won't. But it's a great term. So, I mean, from uh, you know, urban green spaces that you you've done, and you will do that with your kids and teaching them about those values. Uh, uh, you've done some consulting businesses, Darut. Uh, if you want to kind of fill us in on that, um, uh, I, I love the the Deaky Bug Creative Works. Yeah, uh, they, these are. Um, and, and some of your history and some of the things you've done, uh, uh, Bronzeville. And I mean, so talk a little bit more about being a creator. And, and um... Yeah. 
Yeah. So yeah, like I mentioned, it's a it's a it's a title that I've recently only recently started to use and embrace. So thank you for asking me about it. It kind of forces me to talk about it myself in this way. Um, but you know, I think that it's a fitting kind of way to describe myself because I've been kind of on a quest and journey to try to figure out like how do I describe, you know, what I do in a lot of landing on the creator is thanks to, you know, Nanda, who is, uh, you know, leads my PR team, who you mentioned. And so, you know, she really started to, you know, say, well, you know, you create a lot of things. And so whether that's a business or gardens or I love to cook, right? I like to take stuff out of the garden and, you know, transform things and create new recipes. Um, I like to create experiences for people. Um, so, for example, I'm the treasurer for my uh, Park Advisory Council here in, uh, in Chicago. And so Park Advisory Councils are basically these uh, volunteer group of residents who get together and they basically, you know, steward, provide stewardship for a local park. Um, and so the park that's about two blocks from my house is called Armstrong Park, and I'm the Park Advisory Council treasurer there. And, um, you know, when I initially came to this neighborhood, we moved to this neighborhood in 2017, the park wasn't a vibrant space. And I didn't, um, and I always wondered like, what would, what would it take to create the conditions that makes this a place that like people kind of flock, flock to and want to be in and want to bring their children to and that sort of thing. Uh, and so the, I'll tell you a quick story about the thing that made me really get involved with the Park Advisory Council is we had moved here and I took my son to the park and he was about maybe about maybe three at the time. I'm trying to remember his name. I mean his uh his uh, his age at the time, probably about an old two, young three, somewhere around there. But we went to the park, we went to the playground. At the time, this was a relatively desolate park. You know, there were, you know, trash uh, strewn all around. Um, you know, things weren't well taken care of. There was kind of like writing and everything and you know a lot of the playground equipment. And adults mostly hanged out, would hang out on the playground equipment. And so there's one particular time we were there and he was playing and there were two women and one of them passed out, right, um, on the playground. And, you know, it's kind of like, okay, what's going on? So we go over, a couple people walk over, we try to check and see what's happening. And I kind of sent my uh, son over to play with some other people while we, we were checking on this woman and she come to find out she had overdosed right there on the playground. And I was like, wow, right? There's needles and that sort of thing. Oh. And so, you know, it really gave me some insight. It's okay, I really understand why people don't come to this park. And then my question became is like, what would be required to create a kind of park, a green space that's welcoming and that people wanna come to and, and that sort of thing. And so that's when I really got involved. And since then, we've just done a tremendous amount uh, to try to make the park a kind of welcoming place. And, you know, I don't know whether this is, I feel some kind of way about this, but it, now it's in the real estate listings, right? For gentrifying yeah. neighborhood, you know what I'm saying? But, you know, part of now, you know, you read real estate listings and yeah. it says steps away from beautiful Armstrong Park. You wow. Know? wow. So I think that's something, you know, when I think about like being creative. And so I think one of the early things that I did is I wrote a, a article for a, a group called Friends of the Park. And I wrote an article about why I got involved and how I really wanted the, the space to be vibrant and for you to kind of be able to pass the park at any time of day and there's people out there whether it's older people walking around the track 
children playing basketball. And more recently, now we're going to be bringing um, children's and youth uh, baseball and softball to the park because we got a grant to do that. And so that's an example of something that I've been involved in and doing this a little bit of activism, but I would consider it, you know, a creative undertaking, yeah. right? Yeah. Trying to remake a space and create a different kind of space with the physical built environment that's already there. So that people have a particular kind of opportunity to have a particular experience. And so that's an example, but I also create, you know, music, you know, I write. And so that's a creative process, um, you know, writing, even academic articles and books, all of those are creative processes. I've written a children's book. Um, so I just put this umbrella term of creator. Yeah all of these different small little things that I'm engaged in that I do and I just that was the easiest way to try to and maybe the most fitting way to try to capture all the things that I do because I don't consider myself like a green space or park activist um, but I do consider myself a person who will see spaces whether it's a community garden or and, and then figure out how to be creative to create something new and and uh, different and enhance what's already there so that's kind of why I started to call myself a creator. And I think it's a, a title that kind of fits what I've been doing. And I'm just trying to, you know, embrace it and grow into it even more than, you know, I, I have and just say, you know, I create things. It, it reminds me of an old Bobby Kennedy quote, you know, you see things and you want to fix it and change it and create. He didn't say create, but that's exactly what you're saying. You see things, you want to make it better um i mean the whole park thing what a great story you know i i took a, a lecture once with this urban i think he was from columbia i forgot his name but he talked about parks and he talked about how you can see an area like inner city changing when you have parks that are inhabited and, and yeah. used yeah. uh and when you have people sitting outside uh, in sidewalk restaurants and, mm -hmm. and that's the revitalization uh, of an urban area uh, i think his name, last name was jackson it comes to me but i took that that lecture a bunch of years ago so what you're doing is is you're breathing life and 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 this whole creative thing we'll talk a little bit later um about magical black tears this children's book you wrote and, and, yeah. and how it's going to wind up in a museum so i i know all this stuff Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So you got some good inside information. I do. Looking forward to talking about it. <laughs> yes. I spent my time. Uh, I don't yeah. want to lay any guilt on you, but I spent a lot of time learning about you. No, it's all good. It's all good. Thank you. So, you know, well, uh, it's because uh, your your work, uh, your journey is it fascinates me and, and it's so important. So moving on. Uh, a good segue. Uh, and by the way, uh, people are going to see the your website. Uh, it, it's worth a trip to your website because it's it's a great website. And you you don't even know where to go first. So um, so I I went down a list. I clicked on everything and listened to music. And uh, so next on my my list is your um, is your activism. And you said something very profound. Uh, we could talk about it for hours. We don't have the time, but you, you call yourself, uh, your activism is quiet. And yeah. Interesting. So mm -hmm. talk about, uh, and, and I know you, you did say some of your activism comes from the fact that you're a parent. Yeah. So yeah, quite talk a bit, about your yeah. activism. 
Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's interesting. I uh I do tend to be like very quiet. So I'm involved in a lot of things and uh that's why I kind of smiled when you say, Oh yeah, the, the book will be moving into this, you know. Um, but yeah, I tend to just be quiet. Um, you know, it's one of the reasons that I, you know, work with, you know, Nanda and her team, because if I didn't have a team to, you know, kind of push me out, I'd be doing a lot of things and you know, engaging kind of activism, kind of organizing people, whether it's, uh, you know, people around our park or whether it's advocating for, you know, uh, you know, improvement in schools. And really, I would pretty much just be doing it behind the scenes. Um, and I actually really get a lot of joy and fulfillment from working and doing things behind the scenes, uh, coaching people you know, uh, strategizing, coming up with ideas. And one of the other things about me is that I actually will put the ideas, you know, I'm the typer or the writer, you know? So, you know, a lot of times I'll sit in a room and we'll be talking to people about strategies and ideas and it'll just be conversation. And I'm the person that'll pull out the information and organize it so that, you know, people can begin to move forward. I'm the person who will follow up and send text messages and email people to say, hey, when's the next meeting? Maybe we should find a standing meeting date to address this particular issues. So I really take a, a long-term kind of outlook on the role I play in kind of like advocating and activism. Um, but yeah, it's very much behind the scenes. If you talk to people who are engaged and involved with me, they will certainly say, you know, Dakota, you know, is involved with this. So for example, I'm a, I'm a board member of an organization, uh, of an organization called Co-op Ed Center here in Chicago. And we had our, um, we had our anniversary party this past weekend here in Chicago. And, you know, it's a trip because when people are moving through the room, they'll like, my name comes up a lot, which I have a name, Dakota Irby, that nobody else has. So it's only one Dakota Irby. It's not like Mike or Mark, you know. And my name comes up a lot. And a lot of times I'll meet people who have heard of me long before I meet them. I'll give you a really quick story. It was a trip one time. I was uh, This is when I lived in San Francisco. And I had left a nightclub and I, I didn't have a car. So I was waiting for the bus outside of the nightclub. And there were some people, you know, how people kind of hang out after the club lets out. So I'm outside and everything. And I'm talking uh, to a group of people. Um, and this is when I had just probably about a, six months after I had moved to San Francisco from Philadelphia. And I'm talking to a group of people. And there's a woman who was like, you know, where are you from? And I was like, oh, you know, um, you know, X, Y, Z, we're talking. She's like, what's your name? I was like, my name's Dakota. And she says, oh, I know a Dakota. And I was just like, really? Like, you know a Dakota? She was like, yeah, but this guy, he lives in Philly. <laughs> and I was like, that's me. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And she was like, no, uh, that's, you know. And I was like, no, I said, yeah, that's, that's probably me, you know. And so anyway, it was funny because somebody like literally all the way on the other side of the country knew my name from someone who they were working with around some like activism and uh, like blog space had heard of me and so you know I'm kind of pretty active but very active behind the scenes and not really kind of like up front uh the the, the reason that I started calling it quiet is that I have a former uh, student and really good friend of mine whose name is James Ock he started a clothing line um called Only With Kings 
And one of the parts of his clothing line is called, um, it has images of like people on in space. It has images of like panda bears and all of these things that are like quiet. And it's a clothing line called Quiet Work. And he says that the, it was, the clothing line was inspired, inspired by me because I would be doing things nobody would know. And then all of a sudden, like, you know, a book is out or there's a grant that's coming to like refurbish baseball diamonds or something. And everybody's like, where did this come from? And he was like, you know, it points back to, you know, Dakota Irby, who's been doing like quiet work in the background to, you know, push this and make it happen. So that's kind of where that um, idea comes from. And again, I think because of my personality, I had a difficult time describing myself as an activist. And, you know, just even now you could kind of probably tell that it's like hard for it to come off of my tongue. Um, but, you know, I started to say like, okay, yeah, I am very, very active and I do it, but it doesn't look in the, it doesn't look traditional in terms of being out front. It's much more behind the scenes. And so I took the combination of my friend saying that I do quiet work and I'm quiet about things that I do. And, you know, you don't know until it's kind of like almost done. And then took that with the activism and started to just say, you know, this idea of like quiet activism where I'm really in the back. So where I feel good and I love to see other people shine and give other people the platform and let other people do the talking and to, to kind of be behind the scenes, you know, like writing up some, some talking points for them. You know what I mean? So that's mm -hmm. what we would do is the meeting before is we come up with the talking points and then you go out there and you hit all the talking points and make them sound better than I would. And I really get a thrill. I really love seeing that kind of stuff. I, I, I subscribe to that quiet, um, I, I, I'm older and, and, and I've learned uh, uh, to take that more of a quiet approach to get the job done. And a lot of times people don't even know that you job them uh, uh, and you move them because you've done it quietly. And, 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 um, and, and I was in sales and, and, and I wasn't overpowering. I was a quiet salesman, but I was number one in the country when I, uh, uh, and yeah. it's because I did it quietly. So it's exactly Dakota, what you're saying. Uh, you, 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 maybe our species doesn't like noise, uh, mm -hmm. quiet may be a better way. So I think what you're doing, the quiet activism is brilliant because you're getting the job done. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, uh, it, 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 there's, you could write a book about that. I'm giving you a book title, quiet. Yeah, it, that is. Yeah, yeah, that is a good title. That's it's a, good a great title. title, and a lot of people can learn. Uh, a lot of people can learn a lot about that. Uh, yeah, it's interesting because you, when you read history, when you really start to get into historical books and history texts, you start to get the stories of the people who was behind the scene. But in real time, uh, you know, you don't get a lot of it. You get most of the story of the people who are out front. And correct. You know, I'm just not out front. So maybe some point in history, I'll be, you know, in the footnotes and the person they're writing about behind the scenes. And I would, I would, I would like that. I'd be happy with that, you yeah. know, because it would, it would accurately characterize the role that I played in a lot of different, um, you know, wins and some things that didn't win, but it would be, it would be accurate. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm a quiet guy too. Um, so moving on, uh, the next chapter to talk about uh, your musician. Yes. Uh, and and I uh, mentioned to you, I listened to some of, uh, you know, went to your website and listened to some of your music and you have so many uh, 
role models and and so many people you're fans of. Uh, uh, unfortunately for me, I, I I came out of the '60s and I never left the '60s. Mm, okay, yeah. um, I'm stuck there, uh, 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 and I'm trying to kind of broaden my horizons. My son tries to take me by the hand, and he took me some years ago, eleven years ago, to my first rock concert of all things. Okay, yeah, and I'm you know I'm I'm stuck in, in folk music. And, right, right, right. Uh, uh, just the way I am, but I know you, you've got Jimmy down here, uh, Jimi Hendrix, uh, yeah. and and Luther uh, must be Vandross, and mm -hmm. some of your role models. Um, it's funny. I, I posted a picture of Jimi Hendrix. Uh, he, um, I, I I put it on Facebook a bunch of years ago, but it was Jimi Hendrix had picked up an album from Lenny Bruce. Uh, the comedian from the 60s and he was holding the album and it's funny I, I have a bunch of Lenny Bruce albums there and and so I had the same picture that he had but it was Jimi Hendrix with Lenny Bruce and me with Lenny Bruce and I threw it up on, on Facebook because I thought that was kind of cool but anyway um, you're amazing uh, thank you uh, uh, I mean self-taught in guitar and, and you write music and play so um, talk a little bit about your your musical journey and, and the stuff you're doing now and you have a bland uh you have a band dakota black yes correct so talk about your music yeah yeah thank you um yeah you know i'm i'm just like a music lover you know i mean i i think that probably if i would have picked up an instrument and started playing early i probably would be a musician <laughs> that's how much i love it you know i mean you know they say uh you know, um, you know, I'm a working class. I grew up in a very working class household, right? Working class family, working class community. So, you know, our thing was like, you know, we didn't have really people who, we had artists, but, you know, it was always a side gig. It wasn't like you can do art and think of yourself as like an artist. Like we're very, very much so um, a working class family. And so I took those working class values with me, but I would say that if I, uh, you know, were a part of a, a different class or a different group, I would, I think I would probably be a musician. That's how much I, I love music. So I am self-taught. Um, I tried to teach myself guitar several times. And finally, uh, I was about 22, 23 when I really started to, it started to stick. Um, I had tried several times before. I never took any lessons. I never, no, I never had an instrument in my hand before I tried to pick up a guitar a few times. Um, and I started about 23, 24, teaching myself. This was around the time that YouTube came out and YouTube was my, my teacher, right? So I got YouTube and I started to teach myself watching YouTube videos. So I have a bunch of YouTube people to thank for, you know, the basics. Um, and then other than that, just listening and trying to get a sense of like what I, of bands that I love, you know, Radiohead. Of course, you mentioned Jimi Hendrix, West Montgomery was a huge influence. And if I back up, I was influenced by all of those um, folks really during my college years. Uh, I think I made a, a, one of the things that I'm appreciative about that I did in um, undergrad is that, you know, when you move into the dorms, you have an option of like, you know, whether you want to choose someone with the same religion, same race, so on and so forth. And I, because I had grew up in a neighborhood where I had a lot of, you know, Black folks and then my 
high school experience was more racially diverse and integrated. Um, but I had never really spent like time living with someone who was different. And so I specifically in my college application asked to have roommates that were like a different race, you know? Um, and so I did, and it was really cool because it became one of the things that really tied me and both of my roommates together was like this exchange of music. And so it was really a time where like my musical uh, palette expanded and was more refined, became more uh, attuned to different kinds of sounds and different kinds of scales and chord progressions than what I was used to because I grew up off of gospel, R&B, blues and hip hop. You know, that was it, right? Not even really jazz. I really wasn't even in the jazz. I didn't grow up in a jazz household. So it really just kind of expanded my musical horizons. And in college, I was in a band uh, called Beatbox Dub. I was the MC for the band. Uh, before that, I made music uh, um, with the group in high school that I called Sound Shop. And it was me and one of my buddies named Tommy. And we made a lot of music and that sort of thing. But when I was in college, I remember the frustration that I would feel because not playing an instrument, I couldn't translate musical ideas to the people in the band. Wow. And that was so frustrating to me because I would have an idea of something that I wanted to hear, a sound that I wanted to hear, a rhythm that I wanted, so on and so forth. But because I didn't play instruments, I couldn't translate it. And I just didn't have the language. I couldn't. And so I always, we, we made music that I liked, but it was never precise in terms of like the ideas that were in my head wow. and so you know once I started teaching myself guitar I started being able to make the music that it that was in my head right I could find the right notes and find you know the right melodies and the chord progressions that like I had in my head and I started to be able to kind of more accurately translate the sounds that I heard and the rhythms that I heard and put together something that might have like come to me you know in my in my mind um, and so that's kind of what uh, I did. I started off, um, I recorded my first project called The Contagious Spring by myself with one other person named James Murphy. And it was it was really a good time. It was dope. You know, I kind of played mostly all of the instruments. I did drum programming, um, a couple, a little bit of live percussion. And he's a trained kind of person who writes music. So he came over the top and produced it and made it all sound good. And he helped me learn how to, you know, create smooth transitions into bridges and to add some interest and kind of like make the music move. So it wasn't kind of, I came from a hip hop tradition where the beat stayed the same and the tempo stayed the same. And so he really helped push me to start thinking more about changing the tempo, changing the beats from, you know, a four, four to a three, four, you know, transitioning into chorus, going from a major progression to a minor progression, so on and so forth. So, um, I learned a lot of that stuff from him, released a project, met some people because of the project who they heard it and they were just like, we would love to play these songs with you. And that's when I formed the band um, Dakota Black uh, with my buddy John Laws, who's on drums. And then we've had a rotation of mostly self-taught musicians that come in and out of the band. So sometimes we have five pieces, um, sometimes we have three pieces, sometimes we have four, sometimes we have six. It just kind of depends on what stage the band is in, but we play the same you know, kind of songs and I'm always writing new material. My second project um, called Without You, which is, I believe, the one that you kind of listened to some of the songs on, um, that particular project, I actually recorded that in my basement with all of my buddies, right? At the time I lived in Milwaukee, we would play music every Friday night. 
And, you know, we just started having these songs that we would play. And then we just, and I would say, hey, you know, come over. We're just going to work on keys or we're just going to work on drums. And so I pretty much produced and put that whole project together. It's, it's an exciting project. I love it. I love the songs. The musicianship of people is like really good. And again, I think one of the things that I appreciate about myself is willing to kind of like put the songs out there, right? So I'm the person who will write this stuff down give people the template and then tell them don't play this how I've written it put your own thing onto it and then I kind of sit back and it gets way better than I ever could have imagined you know what I'm saying so that's kind of my approach um and so that's kind of what you hear in that project and I've been writing I put down a guitar for like for several years and then during the pandemic I started back uh working on music again and writing songs and so it's exciting. And I write about a bunch of different topics, a lot of love songs, a lot of songs about, um, you know, freedom and liberation, Black liberation, um, you know, political songs. So it's kind of all over the place. But um, I'm just influenced by so many different artists and genres that I try to fit it all into the music. Yeah. That was a long explanation. You can tell I'm excited about it. Yeah, you sure are. Uh, uh... Uh, and and again, I listened to a few things last night, and, and, and it kind of blew me away. Well, because I'm not, um, I I like when you can hear words, uh, and not drowned out by, you know, heavy metal. And I I to me, words are. I'm a writer, so words mm -hmm. are very important. Sometimes when I find the right word for something. It makes my whole day just one word plugged into the right situation. It's so being able to to listen to your words to me and with music in the background. That's just because I'm an old guy, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, you know, I, I came out of Elvis Presley, right? Uh, that that world. Um, so, um, but anyway, it, it, so the so people can find the music right on on your website. Um, yeah. Uh, and uh, and you also can sign up for a newsletter, which I, I did, uh, uh, just to kind of stay on top of things. So uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, uh, there there was a TV show way, way, way before your time called "This Is Your Life" uh, in, in the fifties. I'm talking way before your time, but uh, and, and and I kind of think of that now. This is your life. So in all the things you you've talked about so far, you're also a consultant, um, mm -hmm. and you started this consulting company, Derudi. So talk a little bit about some of the consultant work you do. Yeah, yeah. So we started Derudi. Uh, I started Derudi with uh, four other people, um, black women in particular, back in 2013. Um, and the reason that we started Derudi is that we realized it's a cooperative i should should mention that uh which is one of the things that you know that's the creator creative creator piece right so i can't even i can't even make an organization like everybody else makes an organization i have to make it way more complicated by making it a cooperative but um so the five of us started the root consulting cooperative and basically we started it because we saw a lot of um areas where we were being asked um, or where we could and probably should be asked to provide, um, you know, organizational development, leadership coaching, and different organizations to help, you know, uh, make the organizations better places for Black children and families in particular. Um, and so 
what we did is basically we, you know, would sometimes get like a request for proposals from like a nonprofit organization. And they say, you know, we, we're looking for somebody to help lead us on issues of racial equity over the next six months or a year. And all of us would get the, you know, same call. Like they would email all of us. And so we were just like, you know, we kind of talked amongst ourselves and we're like, we should just collaborate and do it together because you have a expertise in this and I have expertise in this and we'd be better as a team as opposed to working independently. Um, and so that's how we kind of formed, you know, our mission is to support organizations um, and groups that are committed to, um, they're committed to black and brown communities. Uh, and basically we help with improving their organizations um, and, and helping them enact their commitments to racial equity. So, um, you know, we work with a lot of different groups. We end up, because most of us in the uh, cooperative are trained as researchers, there's nine of us now. Um, most of us are formally trained as researchers. And so we have, we do end up doing a lot of evaluation work, participatory approaches to evaluation and a lot of kind of organizational and leadership development. Um, and so that's kind of what we do. We work with churches, municipal agencies, nonprofits, community groups, um, you know, they basically will reach out to us and say, look, we have, you know, for example, schools will say, look, our, you know, black students and families aren't as engaged as we want them to be. What can, as an organization, we do to earn their trust and engagement X, Y, Z? We'll go in, we'll work with that organization to help them address that particular issue. And so that's what we're doing. We've been doing it since 2013. Um, yeah, and it's 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 fun, right? Uh, and it's cool because it's one of those things that you know we committed to, and it's it's moving along, it's thriving, and it's healthy. And um, yeah, it's a way to kind of like move the work forward, um, and a way that allows us to you know be compensated, but also um, you know kind of formalizes a lot of the informal stuff that we were previously doing anyway. Okay, and you're working with with women in, in this case. Yeah, well, there's two two men in the group, but mostly okay. uh, most of our members are are women. Okay. Yes, interesting. Yeah. Uh, uh, if I were to pick out some commonality, I'm I'm on the advisory committee of the Women's Health Institute at Rutgers Robert Johnson Medical School, mm. and that's a long story because of my hat. Long story, but uh, one of the great things that I've ever done was to to work with women. The, we, we took a picture after a lecture. It was really funny. There were 75 students, interns, professors, women. And, and there was mm -hmm. one guy sitting on a chair in front of all those 75 women. It was me. <laughs> that sounds about like me. Yeah. It's always been like that for me. It's always been like that for me. It's great. I get, I, yeah, I get pictures. Uh, someone on Facebook posted an old picture from middle school, and it was like, you know, 10 girls in the picture and then it was me down at the bottom of the <laughs> right off to the side like right. hey you know it's, that's what it's been you know it's all good you know it is all good it, it's 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 it, by the way it, it was transformative in my life to have done that four years ago and i'm actively involved it's changed the whole course of my life and, and priorities and the people that i've interviewed uh, uh, and the things that I concentrate on, some of the things that I concentrate on, it's an awareness. Mm -hmm. We're mm -hmm. soon going to get to an awareness. Um, real quick, uh, some of you, your 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 associate professor uh, at the University of Illinois. Some of the, what 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 
uh, is your course that you teach? Yeah, so I teach in, um, my department is educational policy studies. Uh, and I teach courses on organizational uh, leadership um, and organizational change in particular, how to drive change in organizations. Um, and those are kind of like the main classes. I also teach a class on instructional leadership. And then I teach a doctoral course on urban education and students from all different departments take that, that particular course. Okay. Um, you know, at the university, I'm also the director of our Call Me Mister initiative, which uh, is a initiative that was uh, that is headquartered at Clemson University, but they have about 40 sites around the country. We're one of those. And uh, I'm the director of that initiative. And the, the mission of it is to increase the diversity of the teaching profession by recruiting and encouraging males of color to go into elementary school teaching. And so that's something I've been doing since 2018. Uh, this past year in 2022, of May of 2022, we graduated our first three graduates from that program. And now we have 16 wow. enrolled and, wow. you know, it's a journey and it's, it's fun. Um, one of the reasons that uh, I'm so committed to that initiative is that I went to College of Charleston off of a full scholarship and I understand how much of a huge impact that made on, you know, my life trajectory and, for everybody around me from family and, you know, uh, just being the first person to graduate from a four-year college just made a huge ripple effect in, in our family. So, um, so yeah, so professor, you know, associate professor there, and I do all the typical stuff, like attend a lot of meetings and respond to a lot of emails and review for journals and that sort of thing. Um, I'm also very involved with the American Educational Research Association and uh, several other associations. So that's tip, my typical wow. day job at uh, wow. University of Illinois at Chicago. Intense, intense. Yeah, you just said something really interesting. Uh, I'm not. We don't have the time to really delve into it, but like I said, I, I'm I'm aware, uh, and I pulled out this article three years ago from Brookings um, for better student outcomes, hire more black teachers, um, and I've had this for three years. And, mm -hmm. uh, and point my my point is I'm aware awareness awareness right. how important this is uh, which is a great segue to talk about uh, stuck improving uh, and you're going to talk about that uh, right before we do that just one quick question off topic it's a one word answer you don't have to answer it but it's kind of cool I think. Uh, so here, here it goes. Uh, uh, excluding family or friends, Dakota. Uh, somebody living or dead you'd like to spend a day with. You could be a couple people. There's no rules here. Um, Frederick Douglass immediately comes to mind. Um, I think that's I think that's because you, you excluded family and friends. So I would I would say Frederick Douglass. I mean, I think it seems like an obvious would be Martin Luther King Jr. Right. But I think Frederick Douglass would probably be okay. the person. Funny. Uh, if you would ask me that now that I have a whole list, uh, John Lewis, although I did spend time with him, and, and I would have loved to have spent some time with Fannie Lou Hamer. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because her quote, 
is one of my favorite quotes in the history of mankind. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That yeah. is about as powerful a, a quote uh, as there is. But anyway, that that's uh, so. Moving on, um, let's talk about stuck improving. Uh, I, I, you know, I I took notes. People should know. I I got pages of notes here. Uh, just to, uh, and then I finally stopped because it's so intense. Um, who'd you write this for? Uh, uh, and talk a little bit about the history and, and what you're trying to accomplish here. And, and then uh, I have a couple minor little questions. But for me, reading this, my takeaway and what I've read uh, is the depths of the depths of racism and mm -hmm. how it hurts hurts the educational process and, and our leaders and our educators should be better educated to know about these things and how it hurts the educational process. And if we have a better, a better educated world, we'll be a better world. Yeah. 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 No, thank you. And thank you for reading it. Um, you know, it was, a. I didn't know, you know, when I started what this book would end up being like, and, uh, you know, it stems from a research project that I did at a school that I call Central Waters in the book. Um, and I wrote it for people who, for educators specifically and professionals, people who work in schools that are similar to Central Waters, places where um, predominantly white educators, but also black educators are struggling to figure out how to support black children and brown children in schools. Um, that's who it's for. And it's not a prescriptive book where I tell people I provide a solution. Really what I hope to do with this book is to convey, as you mentioned, the kind of complexity, the depths of the problems and the complexities and challenges associated with trying to unravel the ways that racism is interwoven into our society and especially the ways it's interwoven into everything that happens in schools. Um, and so I really wanted folks to understand that. The, the argument that I make is that as well-intentioned and as much as we want to, or we espouse or say that we want to improve schools and make sure that black and brown children have um, opportunities to learn. And by extension, white students will have opportunity, better opportunities to learn too, um, that our schools are not set up, they don't, they're not set up for that kind of improvement to actually happen. And so the core argument that I make is that schools don't have the capacity to actually do what policymakers want them to do, right? And so in order to um, create more expansive learning opportunities for black and brown children who are in a rapidly increasing population in US public schools, that we really need to pay more attention to the organizational leadership and the conditions that exist in schools. And we need to improve conditions. And one of the reasons that I make this argument is that, um, you know, even if I go back to the example at the top of the, you know, segment where I talked about like the conditions of the park, there's something to say about changing the conditions of an environment that creates different possibilities and opportunities for people to behave, act, learn, be different in a particular space. And so what I argue is that if we don't focus on creating different conditions in schools, that even if we try to, you know, get people to thrive in those schools, they're not going to thrive in the schools, right? If you can't play, if the hoop is bent at the basketball court, 
the, the game is not going to be what it could be if the court is, you know, in good condition. And so I really try to focus on this idea of organizational capacity for improvement and really try to lay out in the book the organizational things, the organizational changes that this particular school community that I studied for seven years made to create a different set of conditions for themselves. And so the book is catered to educators, but I've been, you know, blessed and appreciative that people beyond education have, uh, the book has resonated with people far beyond just the educators who I wrote it for. Um, so yeah, I'm like, you know, people will read it and they're just like, you know, I had a child or I had a similar experience. And so it's resonating in that kind of way. And um, so that's something that is definitely was not expected. I thought that this would be people who work in schools who would appreciate this book the most, but it's been a powerful experience to understand how many people um, outside of that kind of core audience have appreciated the book. You know, it, it raised uh, it raised my consciousness. I, I understand the depths of racism. That's just who I am. Uh, but in, in reading this, uh, you know, uh, Central Waters, and, and, and just a couple of, uh, of anecdotes you put in there, you know, about the student, uh, the Black student who was the recipient of a bad word, and he told mm -hmm. his assistant principal, and he says the principal did nothing with it. Right. So this was an incident that upset this student, which will affect his learning and his experience. And nothing was done because it's racism. Uh, and then there's the student waiting in line in the lunchroom, the cafeteria, mm -hmm. uh, the black student and the two white students in front of him. And he gets up to the woman who's doling out the meals and she closes the line that's the depths of yes. racism. Even those things affect a, a, a child's learning uh, yeah. in that kind of environment. And this is contemporary times here. Mm -hmm. That's yeah, this the is, depths of yeah. racism. Right. And one of the things that I really, you know, I, I appreciate you bringing up those examples. And I really try to fill the book with a lot of those kind of examples. And, you know, the language that I use is like, you know, mundane, everyday racism, like not big, you know, right. a big thing that happens that makes CNN. But if you, you know, what I observed and learned through being embedded as a researcher in the school community, you know, for a period of five years is that the everyday kind of like small things. Yeah. Um, and they're, they're happening, but they compound from kindergarten, you know, through life, really, right? These small little things that are happening, you know, all the time and are really chipping away at people's sense of themselves and sense of possibility and belief that people are good and those sorts of things. All of those kind of like little small experiences, uh, you know, they compound over time. Yep. And, uh, and that's what I really wanted to convey. You know, I, you know, I think I wrote something going back to this idea of quiet is that I, wanted to write the book in a way that was kind of quiet, that took you, took readers into the kind of everyday kind of conversation. So I recount conversations that I had with people and things that I observed, students' experiences, things that were said. And they're quiet things that, you know, I call them quiet because like, if I wasn't reporting them in this book, like the people who experienced it would know, but nobody else would know what happened in the cafeteria line, right? People just wouldn't know. So it's just these quiet experiences that people have 
and they hold them with them. And uh, I wanted to illuminate those to help people understand that when these seemingly small um, experiences happen thousands of times over the course of someone's life, you know, it's, it's how we end up with a society where I don't want to live next to that person. This person doesn't want to live next to that person and so on and so forth, because these things have been just compounding over time. And so in a way, you know, I write that I didn't want to write a book about a big triggering event that happened, but to write about something that kind of, um, and I think that that, I think the reason that I, I chose that is that when these big events happen, you can say, you know, that happened in Ferguson, that happened in, uh, you know, St. Louis, that happened in, you know, Minneapolis, but the stuff that I write about in this book, what people have been telling me since I released it is, they would literally say that I felt like I was reading about my school. Correct. Yeah. Um, how are we on time? Because I know you have to. Are we We're okay? good? A couple more yeah, minutes. I can, yeah, I can definitely do it till about ten fifteen ish or so. Okay, fine, perfect. Uh, I don't know uh, because you know uh, the truth is we could go here for hours. Yeah. Especially <laughs> on, on on this and the things I observed. You know, there was a thing in the news. Um, there was a, a a children's amusement park. Um, I forgot which one it is, and I probably wouldn't have mentioned it anyway. But there, there were, you know, figures, child figures, and and uh, they were walking, saying hello to children, and 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 when they saw these two figures, I forget what it's not important, but when they saw these two black children, they walked away and didn't. Yeah, I, I did see that on social media. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Disney or some some something park. Something, something big. Something big. Something. And they yeah. walked away. Yeah, I remember and, that. And this yeah. is it's a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, they, I mean, it's like you. Uh, I'm, it's like you, uh, when enough already. Uh, you know, we've got we've got the planet. You know, we you know we we're, we have forty thousand species of animals that are going to be extinct soon. We've got the planet which we're losing and you're worried about you won't go so to a child i mean are you kidding me right right are, yeah are you yeah. kidding me uh yeah. you know it, it's um there was a great movie with Cher and nicholas cage when called moonstruck she slaps him in the face and says snap out of it one of the great scenes it's just like mm -hmm. you want to slap people snap out of it yeah Get life yeah you know we're just one species that's why i, I anyway I, I go off on my uh um so um changing changing uh uh so you wrote magical black tears a protest story a children's yes. book uh and and what i what i read is it, it's going to be part of an exhibit coming up in the museum next year yes yes so uh you did some digging that was <laughs> you did I some did. digging i did digging <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, the Magical Black Tears, I have a, you know, it's here. Uh, Magical Black Tears, a protest story. Um, it's a children's picture book. Um, and it's about uh, two children who uh, discovered the magic, the magical uh, power of people who are fighting for everyday, um, you know, everyday people who are fighting for, for justice. And so the, the premise of the story is that there's these two children, they're outside playing. Their mother calls them in, something's happening in the neighborhood. The children are curious about what's happening. Um, 
you know, tell them, you know, what's going on, their parents, being parents, trying to be productive, say, don't worry about it, stay in the house, go to sleep, it'll be over in the morning. So the children is just like, we want to know what's going on, right? They're looking out the window, they see smoke, they see, um, you know, uh, they hear sirens. So when they go, when they put to bed that evening, you know, the kids get up, they go outside and they discover what's going on. And um, and like I said, in that process, they discover the magic of uh, people who are, are are fighting for racial justice. And I'll leave it there. I don't want to uh, spoil it, but uh, it's a book that actually came to me in a dream uh, back in 2016. So at the time in 2016, there was a police um, involved shooting in the city of Milwaukee where I lived at the time. And I just had a dream about it. It was a very vivid dream. It had words, it had sounds, it had color. It woke me up. I got up, I sketched out. Um, <laughs> it was so vivid. I wow. sketched it out. Wow. Uh, and I showed it to a couple of my colleagues in my in the in the cooperative and said, you know, this is a dream I had. And they were just like, this would this would be an amazing book, right? Wow. Uh, and I said, yeah, it would be. We kind of talked about it and didn't do anything with it. It literally just sat until George Floyd was killed. And we're here in Chicago and my two little children saw the smoke. They saw the, they heard the sirens. There was no way we could mask or hide, you know, what was happening from them. And uh, I decided during that time that it was the time to actually finish this book that came to me in a dream for almost five years earlier. Mm. And uh, so I finished up the book and I really felt compelled to write it because I felt in a way, uh, not quite, almost on the borderline of helpless in terms of being able to know what to do or have a resource to talk with my children about what was happening um, in the streets. They saw it on TV and everything. And I really wanted to talk with them, but I didn't have a resource. And, a lot of people didn't have a resource. And I was like, well, you know, I'm a pretty creative guy. I'm pretty open. I've talked with my family. I'm an educator, so on and so forth. If I'm having a difficult time talking to my children about it, then right. this would probably be a useful resource for folks. And so that's that's the, the background of the book. And since then, uh, my colleagues and I at Daru are in the process of developing. We decided we wanted to develop a children's museum exhibition Wow. It's called the Magical Black Tears Experience. Wow. In the museum world, they say every exhibition has a big idea. The big idea of the Magical Black Tears Experience exhibition is that there is um, the, the direct action and protest creates a more racially just world. And so the exhibition experience will be an opportunity for children to engage in independent learning and play about direct action and protest and what direct action is from sit-ins to letter campaigns to, you know, hitting the streets. They'll have things like a sign making station. So, you know, you go to the science museums and you get to make like a rocket. Well, they'll get to make bullhorns. Uh -huh. they'll, they'll be making protest signs. Cool. And they'll have like another station, for example, where they, um, you know, they're on a little stage. They have a lectern and they can like write and deliver a speech and it'll be kind of recorded and, so we have a bunch of things that give children opportunities to learn about what it means to be engaged in a political process through direct action and protest. 
And, uh, and so it's just a, it's a fun exhibition. You know, it kind of fills the space between going to children's museums and every children's museum has the astronauts so they can pretend to be astronauts and go to space. They can pretend to be farmers so they can like pretend to milk the cows. They can put on a farm vest. They can become a firefighter. They can put on a helmet. They can do all those things. And I said, why not create an opportunity for children to pretend and to play and imagine themselves as people who are engaged in a political process? And so that's what the exhibition does. You know, right. it has like, you know, they get to have little protest signs. They get to use bullhorns. They get to stand behind the lectern and make a speech. They get to pretend to be first responders. All of these different kinds of things that uh, we should be doing, I think, in children's museums and in children's spaces to honor all of the people who have fought to make our society more racially just. And in most museums, children don't have the opportunities for that. Oh, this is great. Yeah. Really, to start them at such a young age to be aware politically yeah. aware socially aware right great yeah. stuff it's, it's, it's fun you know there's a puppet show component where you know we're using puppets to teach them you know like what is direct action and the puppet show section is really uh exciting because we don't resolve the problems that the puppets encounter the puppets have different personalities so there's one puppet who's like let's burn everything down right there's another puppet that's like, we should do a letter writing campaign. There's another puppet that says we should pray, right? So we give them these uh, scenarios. And so the puppets then give these different perspectives on the scenarios and then leave it up to the children to kind of explore and wrestle with the, the ethical, the ethics of particular approaches and that sort of thing. So because we wanted to be independent, we want them to really kind of explore and give, you know, children the opportunity to think about, hmm, like what's, what's the implications of burning it down? What's the implications of just writing a letter? What's the implications of doing nothing at all and so on and so forth? So it's really exciting, um, really child-centered. This is my first time doing something like this. We have great partners or collaborator and collaborators who we aren't quite at the collaboration where we're announcing it everything yet, but we will be within the next two months ready to um, announce the collaboration. So if people follow me on social media, we'll be announcing those by the top of the year. So it's very, very exciting. That's great. Um, I have to re-follow re re you um, I'll send, just to keep uh, on top of this because um, I, 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 I think it's it, it's kind of pioneering to do this kind of a, you know, I don't know how often it's done, but to, to bring kids uh, awareness uh, socially, politically, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll follow it. Because uh, I think it's great stuff, really yeah, great. Thank you. My wife thank was a, an educator for 35 years, um, uh, starting out in Brooklyn, New York. You've heard of Brooklyn? Yes, I have. Teasing My children want to go there. <laughs> <laughs> they feel like it's the best place on earth because people from Brooklyn tell everybody it's the best place on earth. You know? Yeah, it's, it's very. It is a, a very special place, it, mm -hmm. it, and it's constantly undergoing such sociological change uh it's pretty cool anyway uh the last the, like i said we can go on but the last thing i want to uh, ask you um is you um you invent your career uh, every seven years it, it, it's it's a theory of yours to reinvent yourself after talk about that yeah yeah so uh you know Thank you for the question, because this is a conversation I've had 
with in private with people of uh, you know friends and colleagues and stuff to kind of help them understand kind of how I see the the patterns of kind of like my life unfold and so you know how most people celebrate 10 years old you know 20 30 and most people follow kind of like you know the decade pattern of you know life and what I found is that my life really kind of revolves around seven right so my younger sister was born when I was seven we moved to a new town when I was 14. Wow. 21 is when I was in college and XYZ, mm. applying to graduate school. I moved to Philadelphia when I was 22. So it's not always right on seven, but it's close to it. So I moved to Philadelphia when I was 22 to go to graduate school. I finished up. I was wrapping up my PhD at 28. So I just saw all of these kind mm. of like, and then I had my first child and then my son was born between 28 and 35. And, you know, now I'm like, uh, and at 35, I moved, I took a new job at UIC you know, from University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee, and then at 36, moved to Chicago. Um, and so, you know, here I am now, I'm 42, and trying to do some things now to, you know, give myself something new, which a lot of it is talking more and being more public and, you know, like talking with you and having these conversations, which is something that in the past I would not have done and that I would never do. And so, you know, I talk to um, people about really understanding, once I reach the understanding of this idea that a lot of major life events for me revolve around the this pattern of seven every seven years, it really helped me this go around be much more intentional about I knew it was coming, right? Um, I knew it was coming. Everybody else wants to celebrate my 40th birthday. I'm like, really the time for me to be reflective and think is like around 42, 42. that 42 year, 42 going into 43 is really the sweet spot year that I found. Uh, just so happens that like, you know, uh, once I get to 49, uh, 50, you know, my children will be leaving the house. So, so I just see this pattern of seven. So. Uh, so I think the important thing about it is, is that, um, it's given me the opportunity to really begin to understand and think about my life and the transitions in my life in a different way. And also importantly, to give myself the permission, because I saw the pattern, I realized the pattern that something's going to happen every seven years, right? <laughs> I'm going to move, something's going to happen every seven years. And so, because I started to realize that pattern I try to give myself now the permission to do something new, to reinvent, to push, to grow, to expand when I'm reaching, when I'm approaching that seven mark. And, uh, and so part of what I'm doing now, you know, I my book, Stuck Improving, my first single author book came out, you know, last year, you know, uh, when I was, you know, you know, during a seven year and I was like, you know, what am I going to do differently? I had, I had a book that came out before that and, you know, I wrote it and it, you know, a lot of people didn't read it. I didn't talk about it. I didn't promote it, which is my personality. And so when I wrote Stuck Improving and realizing I was in that seventh year, I was like, how can I, what can I do differently? Right. Uh, to kind of reinvent, to give myself the opportunity to be more expansive and to grow because I know I'm in this kind of like season of of change and transition and so as opposed to it being something like a big move typically i've had a big move every time 
And I felt this kind of like compulsion to kind of like, I need to do something. I was like, well, you know, what does it look like to make a big move where I'm at? <laughs> um, because I knew it was coming. Um, and so, yeah, so it's just feeling the kind of like restlessness once I hit these seven marks. And so a lot of me getting out, talking, having conversation with people like you, Calvin, is one of the things that I'm trying to do to create a different set of conditions for myself so that I can have a different set of experiences and open up new possibilities that didn't exist before I decided to, you know, have conversations with people yeah. like you. So that's kind of my theory of seven, my kind of like personal it. theory of seven. And, you know, I settle into whatever this is. And then when I start to get close to, you know, 48, 49, y'all start thinking about, okay, what's next? You know, um, so that's my theory. And I just, when I share it with people, you know, they say, ah, I feel like I need to figure out what my is. Is it five years? Is it six? Is it seven? Is it 10? If I look back at my life, what are the patterns that are revealed if I think about, um, you know, big things like when I've moved? And so I tend to have these conversations with people and say, you know, do you notice a pattern? Do you notice a pattern related to your children or to your relationships or to your career? What's that pattern? If you can understand and figure out that pattern, what might that mean for how you yeah. move forward and create new possibilities for yourself? And it's so exciting to think of those new possibilities you know, I'm a little bit of a, a poster boy for change. You know, I went from selling eyeglasses to writing a novel, to becoming a journalist, a broadcaster. I had a cable TV talk show. Yeah. Uh, and, and I did all of this. By the way, I'm going to make you feel really good. I did all these changes, becoming a professor, a teacher at Rutgers, a lecturer, you know, uh, at 73. So I did mm -hmm. all these things after I turned 65. Right. The good news, Dakota, is it, it's never ending. The yeah. changes that you can make. So we're gonna uh, we're gonna kind of break this because you have to teach, uh, and um, I, I I I can't thank you enough for your time uh, and and uh, spending this time with me, uh, not being quiet, um, you know. Uh, uh, and I'm officially inviting you to be you can come back with your band. You can Thank come you. back in any shape, way, or form because I'm I'm here. That'd and be awesome. Thank great you. chemistry and and uh, you know I'm so aboard the things. You know I'm I'm so aboard and it's been part of who I am for a long time. Uh, and and I again I, I thank Nanda. Uh, uh, she's been a great friend. I never met her, but she's been a great friend in introducing us. So uh, don't leave. I'm gonna. We're gonna sign up. But thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so uh, and do come back. I'm gonna stop the recording now. Uh, hang around for one second. <laughs>